Uh, my name is Jeff. Uh, I am not on staff here at Living Streams, but I do attend, so I love being here. Every once in a while I get to teach, so so excited to be with you. I actually run an organization called Phoenix One, and, and we exist to unify the local church through care and connection. We're trying to do that all over the valley with staff, church staff and pastors, getting them to, to connect with one another, but also caring for them, because we're convinced that a healthier team equals a healthier congregation, a healthier congregation equals a healthier community. And so we're just doing the best we can to do our work. Um, a couple months ago, Dwell Conference happened. I don't know if you guys heard about it, but Dwell Conference happened, and, and we got to partner uh, with uh, Living Streams, Dwell Conference, to, um, they asked us, say, hey, what, what would you wanna do? Like, if you wanted to do something, what would you wanna do? I said, I wanna rent an Airbnb like a mile away. I wanna open it up for three days, 24 seven, and invite all these leaders from around the valley. Like, if you need help, if you need to meet with somebody, you need to talk to somebody, you need to confess, come to that house, it's open. Don't leave the conference without doing it. And uh, people showed up in droves and got prayed for, we connected them to counselors, and it was really beautiful, but here's one of the things that I really love. I love that we're at a church that is okay with brokenness. Uh, a church that's okay with weakness, and so if you're feeling weak this morning, you're feeling broken this morning, welcome to Living Streams, we're so glad you're here. Uh, um, about 12 years ago, uh, I started taking, I started going to India a lot, I started taking lots of teams of people over a few years back, I took a team uh, from a church that I was uh, pastoring out in California, uh, and I was taking this group, and we're sitting on this kind of, uh, this top level of this building overlooking Tanali, India, uh, overlooking the city, and this guy comes up to me, and he says, hey man, like, have I done something to like offend you? Like, you know, you don't really talk around me, like really quiet, and he goes, have I done something wrong? And he's like, on stage, you're like so energetic and so full of energy, and I didn't know if I did something wrong. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. I said, I tell people this all the time. When you meet me in person, I'm fairly disappointing. Uh, you know, like, he had this idea of me that like, I'm always like this. Like, I'm just on all the time, and I'm like, like this is how, I, this is my level that I live at all the time, and I'm being authentic up here. This is who I am, but this, is not who I am all day long. You know, this is who I am when God gives me the opportunity to teach. But this guy thought he knew about me. Like, he, a lot of people know about me. You know some things about me. Maybe you've seen me teach before, but you don't know me, right? And when you get to know me, you find out I'm a little disappointing, right? I'm not as full of energy. I'm an ambivert, which means this. Like, at a party, I am not the life of the party. I'm the person in the back of the room trying to find one person to have a significant conversation with. I don't care about the party. I just want to talk to one person and have a significant conversation. Any ambiverts out there? My man. Okay, lad. I just, I, I like going home. I like reading a book. I like sitting on my front porch with my dog. I love that. But you wouldn't know that unless you really know me. Not know about me, but really know me. And here's the disconnect I find with so many people who profess to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We know a lot about Jesus. We don't know him. We don't know him. We don't know him like that. We know a lot about him. We went to Sunday school. We come to church here every weekend. We read our Bibles every once and pray. We know a lot about him, but we don't know him. And this is what we're coming to understand as we've been going through this series over the last uh, few weeks is that, uh, that God is good. And the reason that God is good is not just tethered to this, all these wonderful things that he's done in the past or that he's doing in the future, but what he's doing with you and I relationally right 
now. Right now. He's present to us right now. He's interceding for us right now. He's advocating for us right now. He is a friend to us right now. And so often we miss that because we're too locked in on what he did in the past and what he did in the future that we kind of feel abandoned here in the middle when in reality he is near to you and to me and he's inviting us into his very heart, into his very nature, which is the goodness of God. It's who he is, it's what he wants you to see and what he wants to experience. Um, an amazing author, if you're, if you're a reader, how many of you are readers here in the room? Awesome. Uh, if you're a reader or you're an audiobook person, A.W. Tozer is an author. I've read the vast majority of his works. Read A.W. Tozer. He's incredibly uh, profound, but he has a quote that's been preached around the world, and, and it says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is a relational kind of conversation quote. You know, what came into my mind for most of my life is that God was angry with me, that I was constantly disappointing him. It was almost like, bro, you know all the truth. What's wrong with you? Just do it. Like I always had God like pointing his finger in my chest, just constantly feeling disappointed in me. I related with Susan's stories. You know, he's this patriarch that's just, just constantly disappointed in me. It's almost like he's like, again? You failed again? Like, this is how I have felt for a vast majority of my life. And this is why what Tozer's saying is so important. I would imagine many of you feel that way sometimes. And that maybe even coming to church is not an easy thing because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna feel guilty, I'm gonna feel overwhelmed, and here we go again. And maybe you've, some of you have actually walked away from the faith. Because you're just like, I just can't deal with this anymore. And Tozer's like, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing. So this is why we've done this series, but this is why I want to frame up this passage. This passage to me is so life-giving. It's been so overwhelming for me. But I do think that we need to lean in a little bit and learn a little deeper what is actually going in here, David referred to it, talked a little bit of it last week, and we're going to go a little bit deeper this week. It's Matthew 11, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. And it says this, at, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, or the learned, and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, this is the Christology. This is him going, God and Jesus, they're the same. This is John 1 going, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying as he stands before the people, God and I are the same. God and I are the same. And then he transitions into this part that we all love. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It said there's like a myth that says that, that you know Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years. He picked up the trade from his father. And it was said that, 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 um, that Jesus was the master yoke maker. 
Like he was the best. He made the best yokes. And so when he's talking about a yoke here, he's talking about something he's been fashioning for years. He knows all about and he's done it the best. You know, a yoke is something that, that is like two uh, half used and they, and they are two used and they, you would stick an ox in there and they would plow the field. And Jesus would know about how to create an, a, a yoke. He knows all about that. And so he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Uh, before we get into this passage, we need to have a little context. I find it so interesting that we pull passages out of the Bible without knowing the context. You know, we like to put them on coffee mugs and bumper stickers, and it's kind of like me, you know, coming to you and said, my wife said she loves me. And you're like, and why, why did you tell me? Like, I just want you to know she loves me. So, you know, what does that mean? Tell me why, what'd you do? Did you do anything awesome? No, I just wanted you to know that. Like, this is what happens when we yank passages out of the context without really knowing how we got here. So how we got here in Matthew 11 is we have John the Baptist is in prison. Now, John, from the very beginning of his life, has been ushering in the Messiah, you know, ushering in the Messiah. He, he, when Jesus comes to be baptized, says, behold, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. That's where he has that beautiful, I must decrease and he must increase. This is John. John's in prison. And John's like sending his disciples off to Jesus being like, are you the one that we've been prophesying, that we've been thinking about? Like, are you the one that is to come? Because in John's world, it's like, wait a second. I didn't see myself in prison in this scenario. I, I, I saw us like overcoming the Romans, reestablishing the people of Israel, but I am prison because Herod's got a thing against me and he wants to cut off my head. And are you the one we've been waiting for? The disciples, that Jesus sends the disciples back to, some of the disciples back to John and says, I am everything. I'm healing the blind. I'm taking care of the sick. I'm doing all the work that the Messiah does. And he essentially says to John, and I've got you right where I want you. And I know this gotta be hard for you. So you have John in this moment like, I don't really understand. And Jesus says in verse 11 that about John, he is the greatest. And then he transitions to say, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is inviting us in. When you see Jesus, he's just kind of inviting us into something where he's taking us, something he's trying to help us understand. And then in verse 19, uh, he starts describing about how people are talking about uh, Jesus, about him. And, and he says, they see me as a glutton, as a drunkard, as a friend of tax collectors and a sinner, not a Messiah, not this powerful, you know, hierarchical, kind. no, this is how they see him. And it's so confusing for people. Jesus is so confusing for people as he goes and heals the lepers and cares for the, uh, the lame and, and he meets it with this Samaritan woman and brings her wa gives her water, right? The, the demoniac, Jesus and the demoniac. Like, they don't know what to do with this. They don't know where to put him in some box, but he definitely can't be a Messiah because the Messiah doesn't do that kind of stuff. Then he transitions into this idea of he gives woes to these cities, and he gives woes to these cities because they've rejected him. He's done all this beautiful work that the Messiah was called to do, and they reject him because he's not who they thought he was. They know about him, they don't know him. And so he's woeing them. And I started thinking through, like, what would be the woes against America right now? The Church of America. Woe to you. 
in all of your affluence and influence. Your just deep desire to be in control and have all the power, all the knowledge. Woe to you, you have missed me, the Messiah. And then he invites us into this verse in 25 and 26. And I think, listen, so often as this passage is taught, we miss this part. We don't, we don't really go through this part, and it's actually really important. It's, all, it's, all, it's a warning to us, but he, he's, he's kind of trying to get our attention, and he's been doing that all throughout chapter 11. He's been trying to awaken us to something that he's trying to bring to us. And he says in verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, now listen, hidden these things from the wise and the understanding or the learned and revealed them to the little children. Here's what he's saying. Thank you, Father God, my God, thank you that those who think they have it all figured out, that those who think they're sufficient in their knowledge and their wisdom and their own wisdom, but those who think they're strong, that they got you pinned, thank you that you have not revealed this truth that I'm going to bring to them. What he's saying is that pride has inebriated us to the goodness of God. Pride, C.S. Lewis called pride the essential vice, the utmost evil. He calls it the great sin. It is the sin that had Satan be cast out of heaven and now has fractured all of humanity. It's this moment where you and I go, I got this. I got this figured out. I know what to do. I know all about God. I know all about this story. I, I'm good to go. I got it figured out. And I have to be honest, um, over the last few months, particularly over the last few years, but over the last few months, I've been really connecting with these attributes of God, these attributes of Jesus, that he is our intercessor, that, that, that he is our advocate. And as I was reading through these passages and, and books that were talking about him, I was having a difficulty connecting with them. I, I was going like, I had a difficulty connecting with the fact that he's interceding on my behalf, and I was like, what's going, why isn't this just getting me pumped, that Jesus is in heaven right now, interceding to the Father on my behalf? Why isn't this getting me, oh, that's right, because I've spent all my life doing it on my own. I'm a survivor, and I got this, God. And so I can't connect with that, because I'm not willing to humble myself to allow myself to really take on the glorious good news of that reality because I got this, God. It's pride. And this is what's being revealed in me. I hope it's what's being revealed in you. We're not connecting with God in this way because something is, continues, we continue to hit our lid over and over on this, and it's pride. I don't need God. I'll figure it out on my own. And this is this essential vice that's been crushing people. And Jesus is like, You're, you've not revealed it to them. They're missing it because they already got it all figured out. Then who then? Who then understands this beautiful truth? It's the childlike. The childlike is the one who receives this wisdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The rich shall be poor, right? 
This is what he's explaining. He even says this in the context of all that John was going through. Hey, John is the greatest, but the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. He's inviting us into this, but we miss it. You know, my, my son, I told you when he was eight years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. It was super painful, super hard, and I was angry, angry. How dare you? How could you do this to me? So angry. And one day we're driving to church. I don't know if you know this, but not everybody who drives to church wants to go to church. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody who, some people are in the car going, why am I doing this? I don't want to be at church. You know, why am I going? Is this just some like Christian charade that we go through, right? You know, some people, if you're honest, you like somebody wants to raise their hand, like I'm not raising my hand, right? But I was on the way to church and to be honest, I didn't want to go to church, right? Because I'm angry. God and I got some stuff and we need to work it out. So driving to church, and I'm really upset. I'm in a spot, and I look in the rearview mirror. We had some music going. It was just me and Cooper in the car. And I look in the rearview mirror, and Cooper's in the back seat of the car, and he's raising his hands in worship, and he's crying. He's experiencing the kingdom of heaven on earth, the spirit of God. In the midst of this broken little boy, in his life, in his pain, he has a childlike faith that says, God and I are gonna beat this. And he senses the nearness of God. Meanwhile, his father's in the front seat, shaking his fist to heaven, saying, how dare you? This is the posture of our heart, that Jesus is kindly trying to, to, to open up and have us deal with. And I wonder where you're at right there, where you're at, because he's trying to help us see these children this faith of a child that can just receive the goodness of God even in the midst of despair. And then he moves us forward. And if you get this, if you understand, then you go like this, come to me. You'll understand this. Come to me. And you'll be like, yes, I'm coming. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. And then he says this. I think this is one of the most profound passages in the New Testament. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. There are 89 chapters in the New Testament. This is the only place that Jesus tells us his heart, about his heart. The only place. The heart is who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for it affects everything you do. Why? Because it's who you are. Jesus is trying to tell us who he is. Now, he could have put anything there, couldn't you? He? he could have said, I'm powerful, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm above it all, I'm merciful. He could have said anything, but the thing he wanted us to know about who he really is is that he is gentle and lowly. He's gentle, he comes to us, his mercies are new every morning. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance and lowly is come. It's an invitation. This is who he is. And Jesus is displaying this to all the world in human form. Uh, there's this great commentator and he says this, the, the teacher is the doctrine. There is no separation between theory and practice because intention uh, between intention and deed, between God and man. He is the perfect example of all that he teaches. Jesus is the living example of what it is to be gentle and lowly. And he displays this wherever he goes. 
And in fact, if we'll slow down a little bit, what we, this word incarnation for me has been so important. And that's a fancy way uh, of saying, Eugene Peterson translates it, is that God moved into the neighborhood. He didn't stay in the heavenly realm. He came to us, Emmanuel, God with us. He incarnated, which means this Hebrew says, we have such a great high priest. Why? Because he sympathizes with our humanity, which means this. If you're in pain, Jesus knows that pain. If you've been rejected, Jesus knows that rejection. If you've been troubled, Jesus knows that trouble. Why? Because he is human. He came to us. He felt like us. He broke with us. He bled like us. He cried like us. He is near to us. He came to us. He came near. Not only that, but now in the present, his spirit resides in those who confess him as Lord and Savior. The incarnation now lives inside of us. Spirit of God is closer to us than Jesus. Jesus himself said, you will do more as a result of the Spirit of God coming to us. He is near to us, close to us. He came near to us. Dane Outland is the one who wrote this book, Gently, Gently, Gently and Lowly, Gentle and Lowly, that we've been kind of referring to over the last few weeks. And, and he says this, Jesus doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives, listen to this, lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us up into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. How beautiful, how beautiful. This is who he is. He is near to you. He incarnated himself. God became man and lived among us. And then his spirit has come to now incarnate the very moment you sit in, the very moment we sit in right now. He is speaking to you right now. But the question is, are you allowing him in? Are you allowing him in? And I think as a lot of it is we have a false sense of who God is, how he acts, and what he does. I think so often we think of God as invasive when in reality he's inviting. Like in our minds we have Jesus like a CIA operative kicking down the door of our hearts going, let's go get them, let's make them repent, but we're gonna bring them to their knees, right? Show them what an awful person they are and then they'll repent and turn back to us, right? We see in our mind's eye that's how God's operating. He's kicking in the door of our hearts and he's storming in with the troops and he's gonna get you. He's gonna get you and he's gonna make you right. It's not true. He's inviting. He's inviting. You know, when, when I was a kid, this will tell you a lot about the church I grew up in. Uh, they, uh, I, remember, I was probably five and when there was a Dairy Queen and it was an out, how many of you remember Dairy Queen when it was outside, right? All you bougie people with your inside Dairy Queens, right? That's why you got the ice cream. The ice cream was, it's hot outside, now I have ice cream, right? But now they give us air conditioning like we're a bunch of pansies, okay? But back in the day, it was outside, okay? Outside was Dairy Queen. And so I was at Dairy Queen, and there's a guy, and he's smoking a cigarette. And he's really enjoying his cigarette, smoking it, taking a big drag on it. And as a five-year-old, I walked up to this guy, and I said, excuse me, sir. And he said, yeah. And I said, you're going to hell. 
You're going to hell. I just want you to know that. You're going to hell because you smoke cigarettes and sm cigarettes are the devil and you're going to hell. And he was like, Who's, where's this kid's mom? You know, like, what, what's going on? But I was like passionate about it because that in my mind, even as a child, that's what I thought God was. He was going to go after everybody going, sinner, 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 condemned to hell, condemned to hell. And what would we find out? Oh, we find out he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. Revelations 3.20 says, behold, listen to this. This is who he is. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. He stands at the door of your life and he knocks. He's not kicking in the door. He's saying, I am gentle and I am lowly. Invite me in. Invite me in. This is what we see with the prodigal son, the greatest story ever been told. The father sits on the porch. He doesn't run in to rescue the son, knowing that the son has rejected him and is spending all the money. No, no, no. He waits for the son to come home in repentant heart. And the father embraces him and kisses him and restores him to home. This is who God is. God is gentle and lowly in heart which ultimately leads us to this beautiful truth that he is sacrificial in his love. He's sacrificial in his love. I, 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 there's this moment where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and I just can't get over how personal this is. Like, how many of you have seen a mother like wash an infant, right? You don't want to see a dad do it. Dad's like, Brunk. Right? But the, the mom, like, they take the sponge or the washcloth and they like squeeze it out over the head. And like I see Jesus washing the disciples' feet just delicately. Because why? Because he created their feet. Those toes, he intricately designed for their body. He knit together, knit them together in his mother's womb. Now what is he doing? He's holding them in his hands and he's washing them. And as he says this to him, Peter rejects it. <laughs> of course he does. Peter's like, you won't wash my feet. Do not, do not wash my feet. And Jesus then turns to Peter and he says this. Peter, if you're struggling with me washing your feet, you're really gonna have a hard time when you reject me and I forgive your sins. I die for your sins. If you're gonna struggle with me washing your feet, humbling yourself to get your feet washed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you're really gonna struggle when I die for your sins. And then he says to the disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. This is what a gentle and lowly father looks like. This is who he is. This is his very nature, his very heart. And he's wanting all throughout the canon of scripture to invite you into it, invite you into who he is. He is the manifest, Jesus is the manifestation of all that scripture is trying to say and trying to help us out who God is. And what does God do? God washes feet. And not only does he wash feet after this, he stands before, he stands before a council of people who are criticizing me. He says no words. Why? Because he knows who he is. He's got nothing to prove and no one to impress. He doesn't need to be powerful. He doesn't need to call in a legion of angels. He doesn't need to do that. He's going to be weak and allow his father to do with him what he has said he would do with him. Not my will, but yours be done. And then we beat him. And then he, carry, he carried that cross. Jerry, Joseph of Arimathea carried that cross and Jesus was in such disarray he couldn't carry it on his own. 
our God. And then he's crucified, and as we mocked him and spit in his face, saying, you, if you were really God, you would do something extraordinary here, something powerful. Display your power, God. If you're God, display your power. But instead, as we mocked him, he spreads out his arms and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't know that I'm gentle and lowly in heart and then while they mock me, I'm going to give up my life for them because it's who he is. And if we're honest, and I really would love for you to be honest, we don't love this Jesus. We want a warrior Jesus. That's why I think a lot of us disconnect with this Easter narrative that we're in because we want a warrior Jesus just like the disciples did. We want him to eradicate all the bad people and we're on the winning team and, and we're on Jesus' team. Go crush everyone. We want that Jesus. We don't want a Jesus that's gentle and lowly that allows his creation to beat him and mock him and hang him on a cross, ultimately killing him. We don't want that Jesus. But Jesus is like, this is who I am. I'm gentle and I'm lowly of heart. And what does gentle and lowly do? Gentle and lowly dies in our place. The propitiation for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So we could be the righteousness of God. Why? Because that's what a gentle and lowly God does. He does that for you. That's who he is. That's who he is. So what are we to do in this moment? And what I think the best thing for us to do is what Jesus has been hinting to us all along the way is that we need to be weak, to use our weakness as a weapon. That's why with Paul, Paul's like, take this thing away from me. And Jesus says, no, because in your weakness, you will find the strength that you need. And I know it feels counterintuitive. I, I know it runs against everything that you've been taught for the most part by your culture and sadly sometimes by the church. But Jesus is inviting you into his gentle and his lowly heart. And he's saying, it's okay to be weak. It's okay to fall apart. And I translated a few passages that I, I, I thought were really impactful as it relates to this weakness, like blessed are the weak, for they will see Jesus. In this world, you will be weak, but take heart of overcome the world. For God so loved the weak that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever will be weak and believe in him will be saved. But God showed his love for us in that while we were weak, God died for us. This is who Jesus is. And this is what he's inviting us into, his very heart, his very nature. My, my mom, um, she allowed me to tell the story, but my mom, when she was a teenager, um, was raped. And she lived in a generation where you didn't talk about that stuff, and her parents didn't talk about it. They just pushed that right under the rug, and she just continued on through her life. Uh, she met my, my dad, and she loves the Lord. My mom has loved the Lord since she was young. And just having that wound in her heart, but just buried, buried, buried deep. She got married to my dad. She had me in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's a real place. Uh, and, and, um, but she had this wound in her heart, this lie that continued to seep in. And, and, and 
as we moved to Ohio, um, as the story goes, she would like act out. She, she made out with a bag boy at the grocery store. She, we found this out uh, a few later, or a few years ago, maybe five years ago, she told me that she had had an affair with a mechanic to be able to fix the car. And then when I was 12, she had an affair on a family friend and she just left. Like one day, she, I just showed up to their room, bedroom, all her stuff's gone. She just left. This wound just set in. And, and she repented and, and a few years ago, a few years back, she starts going to a counselor and, the, and she's trying to sort through like what is happening? This, this abused young lady is now a grown woman and is just disconnected. She doesn't, and she's been working so hard to try to prove that, like, see, I'm good, I'm, I'm okay. And so the counselor's like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go sit on your back porch, which is where she does her time with the Lord. I just want you to journal. What is it that the Lord is speaking to you? And, and, and the Lord had spoke to her as she was sitting on the back porch. What do you want to tell me, Lord? And he, she felt him say, I love you. And she told me, as she was telling the story, she goes, I knew that, I felt that. I felt for my whole life that even though I had gone through these really painful things and I hurt, that he loves me. And then he has, then the next thing that came to mind is, you're a good mom, Linda. And she said, I yelled at God. I said, I'm not a good mom. A good mom doesn't have an affair. A good mom doesn't leave her kids. A good mom doesn't do that. God, I'm not a good mom. And he said, Linda, you're a good mom and you're a daughter of the most high God and you are cared for and I love you. And my mom, she fell apart because for her whole life, she just thought she was a mistake. And she's spending her whole life trying to prove to God that she matters. And I think so many of us are doing that. And we're disconnected from a gentle and lowly God who comes to us in our pain and in our hurt. And he says, I've redeemed all that you feel is overwhelming. I've redeemed every sin that you feel that you are a beautiful son and daughter of the most high God. And I love you. And I've redeemed that broken area of your life. And my mom said, I, I cried so hard. I had a soul cry that I fell asleep fell asleep into the mercy of God, his gentle and lowly heart that says to a weary world, come to me, come to me. Those of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Learn from me. Why? Because in my very nature, who I am is gentle and lowly, and I love doing this for you. Receive my love. Receive my gentleness. Receive my lowliness. Take it on into your very being and live life and life to the full. This is what I've invited you into. And this is what the church needs to understand right now. Stop trying to prove to God that you are a somebody. You are a somebody. You matter. You are not defined by your wounds, by your abandonments, by your pains and your hurts. You are defined by the fact that the God of the universe sees you, knows you, loves you, and says, welcome home. I'm a good God. Amen? There's this quote by Oswald Chambers, and it says this. The moment we recognize our complete weakness and our dependence upon him will be the very moment 
that the Spirit of God will exhibit his power. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll teach you. Because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And I want to give rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. My easy yoke upon you. And you'll finally find that rest. Why? Because I'm a good God. I want you to get to know who I am, not just about me. I want to abide in you, and I want you to abide in me. So you'll produce fruit. So you'll find joy in the midst of suffering, peace that passes in all understanding. This is who I am, and I'm inviting you in to your rest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for showing us your heart, that you are gentle and lowly. Father God, I pray right now through your spirit that you would awaken the pains and the hurts and the hearts of those who are hearing this word from you. That they would no longer keep running, but that they would give up and lean into your truth and your love, and your mercy, and your gentleness, and your lonely lowliness. Reveal all that you are to them. Continue to teach us. Thank you that you're always there knocking. We want to invite you in. Invite you in. Thank you that you are good. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All God's people said, amen.